Hi, this is Dana Stevens, Slate's movie critic, and I'm here with the Slate Spoiler Special Podcast on Crazy Heart, the new movie starring Jeff Bridges as a down-and-out country singer. So joining me in the Slate studios is John Swansburg. Hi, John. Hey, good to be here. Who is Slate's culture editor and a fellow appreciator of Crazy Heart, right? Indeed. Yes, this was, uh, this was a really fun movie. Uh, to watch Dana um, dropped off the the uh, a DVD screener for me last night, and I didn't I didn't put it in until sort of late in the evening, and I was a little sleepy, and I was so happy when this movie ended. It, it's not it's not a great piece of filmmaking. It's not a fantastic movie, but it, it's a movie that leaves you very very happy, and it leaves you humming its its music. And um, I just really I just thoroughly enjoyed it. I I, uh, I I speak very highly of it. I'm glad. I wanted to drag somebody in to spoil this with me because I feel like this movie hasn't got enough attention for, for how interesting it is and how great Bridges' performance is. I mm-hmm. think it's going to get attention come Oscar time, but I I, it, it would be great to get people actually out in the theaters to see it before yeah. that because I don't know what the promotion strategy has been or what kind of mistakes were made, but it seems obvious to me that this is Oscar material, at least his performance, and the movie's really been sort of snuck into even the consciousness of critics, much less the larger public. Yeah, I think there's night. some story about how it, you know it's one of those sad Hollywood stories about you know good movies that get somehow lost in the distribution channels because they just don't have the right rabbi at the you know studio or whatever. I can't remember the details, but um, people should go out and see this movie if, if for no other reason than just for the Jeff Bridges performance, which is really great. I mean, it's it's a great performance within a slightly less great movie, but the movie itself is is fun. It's not a it's not a bad movie. It it has a lot of um, a lot of qualities. Um, you know, its its story arc is not entirely surprising. In some ways, it's it's somewhat familiar. But again, Bridges, who was at the center and plays. Uh, this this sort of down and out country music singer named Bad Blake um, is if you're particularly if you're a Bridges fan, but even if you're not, uh, I think it's a performance um, that you kind of need to see. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. Well, let's let's walk through the the predictable yet satisfying story <laughs> arc here. Okay. So so we start off. Um, we hear a, a Bad Blake song, which is actually Jeff Bridges singing and playing. Um, right. And and we see him pulling into this little podunk town where he's been booked to play at a bowling alley. Right. And it's established, I think, very quickly and and without a lot of uh, exposition, without voiceover or anything clunky like that. Right. That he was quite a big country singer in his day. You get the impression that he was a Willie and Waylon and the Boys kind of guy. Like yeah. he was a hit making country star back in the day. He's now supposed to be in his early 60s or so, yeah. and is playing a bowling alley in the middle of nowhere, and uh, and is completely drunk when we first see him, right? Right. He's completely drunk for most of the movie, in fact. And that was actually one thing that the movie does really well, is that um, he's a very convincing alcoholic, I think. I mean, he's ne- it's, it's very rare for him to be sort of uh, bumbling um, drunk or sort of uh, completely lacking in function. He sort of always just has, has this kind of like glazy... Um, booziness about him. It, sometimes he does really drink to excess to the point where he's vomiting and having to leave <laughs> leave the stage because he's uh, gonna, going to be ill. But throughout the movie, uh, at least until an important turning point, it seems like he's kind of always drunk and convincingly so. Right. He's so, and he's sort of proud of being a, a sort of high-functioning, low-functioning alcoholic. Right. In other words, his real career is over. He's not writing any more songs. His creative peak is past. But he still is proud of him, his, his record as a gigging musician, right? right? So early on, we hear him say, Bad Blake has never missed a, a set. He just runs out and vomits in the middle of his set and comes <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that, that's kind of a great scene. He's uh, he's prom- earlier uh, in the day. This is the, f- the first, I think, the first day that the where the movie begins. He's sort of at a. Uh um, liquor store, trying like looking longingly at a, a bottle of his favorite whiskey, but we we know that he doesn't literally doesn't have enough money in his pocket, I think, to buy the bottle that he wants. 
but the um, the purveyor of alcohol, the owner of the liquor store, sort of recognizes him because he's a he's a bad Blake fan and sort of says, "I'll you know I'd love to buy you this bottle of of uh, McClure's whiskey, which I think is a made up brand." Um, but he also asked him to to uh, play that evening at the bowling alley a song for his wife Beverly and to dedicate it to her. And so Bad says, "Sure, I'll I'll do that." And uh, he he makes good on the promise. And he says that you know later in that night when he's playing, he says that this song is going out to Beverly. But then his, he kind of gets his wave of nausea passes over him, and he takes his ten gallon hat and puts it over the mic stand and goes out into the back into the back lot of the bowling alley and just vomits. And the, his backing band has to play the song for him. But then he comes back and he sort of finishes the song and he sings the last chorus in this kind of sweet way and and there is this kind of sense that he's you know despite being a complete uh complete non-functioning in a way alcoholic he is able to still sort of soldier through and and is committed to his art in a certain way there's a lot that's established by that scene because i mean this is this is sort of the way in which the movie is predictable um as a whole as a sort of schematic redemption narrative about about alcoholism and performance but scene by scene and line by line i found it really pleasingly unpredictable Mm -hmm. and when he gets that liquor and the guy says please play a song for my wife beverly and request a specific song you just know you just know he's going to mess it up right Right. because of course the drunken guy and the redemptive narrative is going to mess it up but i thought he was going to mess it up in some insensitive way where he forgot her name or right. forgot to do it or something like that. But in fact, he gets he gets all the niceties right, right? Yeah. So it establishes that he's he is a caring guy. He's just he's a low functioner, right? I mean, right. he's just a, a fuck up. And, and another nice sort of grace note to that to that scene is that even though he is a fuck up and he completely messes up that dedication, there's a there's a very brief shot of the liquor store owner and his wife beaming at the very end of the performance. Like they sort of that was okay for them. Like all it mattered most to them that he remembered to do it and that he tried. And I think that they are sort of aware that they're catching this guy at the at the sort of nadir of his career but it meant something to them that he he bothered to remember to, to do it which was a nice touch they weren't sort of horrified by what they'd seen which was sort of interesting right so that after that first scene that establishes essentially that the level of star he is what his life is now like and you know how he's he's kind of blundering his way through it the narrative proper begins which is this this young journalist played by maggie gyllenhaal her character name's Jean, Jean, right? yes uh interviews him in the same small town which is set up by it's an interview that's set up by her uncle and a scene that I wanted to point out to you because it's, it's one of the moments of inauthenticity in the movie. I think that everything that has to do with music and the music industry feels really authentic to me, including mm-hmm. the songs themselves, which I want to get to later. Yes. But everything that has to do with journalism, which is Maggie <laughs> Gyllenhaal's world, feels kind of absurd. It's totally absurd. So, so she's she... this music journalist for, I guess, the Santa Fe paper. Right. And her uncle, trying to you know sell Jeff Bridges on letting himself be interviewed by this unknown journalist, says you know she's getting her start as a music writer. And I really this one detail that really clanged with me. Do you remember? this is when the uncle says it's not like it's the New York Times you know but she's getting her start in journalism and I was just thinking that's so not country you know right, right. I mean if this guy's supposed to be this country music you know dude whose who's daughter writes for this paper and who loves Bad Blake he's not going to value the New York Times as the ultimate paper of record <laughs> that's a great point it's, I didn't uh, catch that particular uh, piece of ridiculousness vis-a-vis the journalism angle but that, that <laughs> is really funny and there were there were several others I mean she the, the idea that she's this reporter is is sort of the thinnest uh, excuse to get her in a in a motel room with um, with Bad Blake doing an interview and to sort of you know inaugurate uh, what becomes a sort of interesting uh, romance between between the two of them. And it was interesting at first. I thought that I didn't think that they were going to get together, but in fact they do, and relatively quickly. Um, if, if you know the first time she does an interview, she seems to understand his charms, but also be able to withstand them to some degree. But then the next time they get together. 
they get together. Yeah, yeah, and it's it's actually I mean the flirtation between them is is really intense. It's not like it's a slow build or anything. Right. That's one of the moments where the again the movie's predictable as a whole. I did see that they were going to get together, but but scene by scene it's really interesting, and I love the the flirtation between them during the interview because clearly both of them are smart people that get the game from the beginning. She knows right. that she's using her charms and her looks and her feminine wiles to get a good interview. Right. Right. And he sort of knows, hey, I'm lucky not only to get some coverage, but to get some coverage from this this cutie. You know. Right. So they've got this great flirtation. Going and also, on. I mean, it's another, it's a testament to um, how, how good Bridges' performance is that he's at once, he looks terrible and he's completely magnetic. Oh, you know, it's completely it's like, believable that she would jump him in the hotel room, even though he's this bloated, overweight, right. 60 she year old alcoholic. Wa- she walks in on him, you know, as he's just getting out of the shower. That's her, her first impression of him, of him is he's like watching some, like, what looks like sort of soft porn on Cinemax in like a, in like a nasty towel with his like <laughs> pasty gut hanging out. And he's completely forgotten that she's coming over and he just looks like an absolute mess. And yet it doesn't, even though it, it may be predictable that they get together, it's not entirely, you know, it, you, be- you believe it. Um, you know, that, that she would fall for him and that he would fall for her. Um, yeah, their connection didn't bother me in the genre of what a, a friend of mine coined the classic phrase, a piece of beef jerky caressing a rose petal. <laughs> Which is sort of like wow, the, that's perfect the for this Jack movie. Nicholson, Amanda Peet, you know, that kind right. of relationship. But it didn't feel like jerky caressing a rose petal to me. They, they were a good match somehow. Yeah. yeah, they were really great. And she has a, so she, we should say she has a small son uh, who's the, the product of a previous bad relationship. We kind of get the sense that she's, uh, has a soft spot for sort of uh, unsavory guys, um, but as you say, you know, Bad Blake is—he's sort of unsavory in, in a way. I mean, he's—he's he's an alcoholic, as we said, and he's not entirely reliable. But there also there are a lot of kind of save the kitten moments in this in this movie where we see that he's—he has a heart of gold, and he really takes to her son. He makes uh, the son biscuits, and um, you know, he—he just—he seems to to have a genuine affection for for her child and 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 for her. Although there's a climactic scene where. Uh, his alcoholism gets the better of his uh, gets the better of him, and, and he loses the son. Are right? Jumping, is that jumping ahead too far? No, we... no, we can get to that. I guess so. They 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 get together while he's on the road, and they continue to sort of conduct a long distance romance while he continues his his gigging life. And then at one right. point, she goes back to visit him in Texas, where right. he lives. Right. He lives in Houston permanently when he's not touring. And uh, and at this point, he's he hasn't started to clean himself up alcoholic wise, but he started to get more creative. He started writing a song because of her, and you get the feeling that you know things are looking up for him a little bit. Yeah. And uh, and she comes for this visit, which is a complete disaster in a way that I thought was. I mean, I guess you could say you know it's a predictable story arc moment, but I actually thought it was very realistic to what it's like to to try to be with an addict, right? To yeah. be, try to be with a person who's an addict. So they have this great time together, but then he convinces her to let him babysit the boy, which right. you immediately hear <laughs> like oh please don't ominous do this. bells, yeah. right? And although, uh, and although loses him in a shopping mall, right, right. Um, he does babysit. They do set it up well because the he babysits the boy once before that, back when they're still in Santa Fe, and does a good job of it. So you, but you, has to immediately come home afterwards and take a and big take a belt. swig, right, right, right. So this time he's in the mall with the kid and, and showing him a good time, but then he he needs a drink and he takes him to the to a bar and, and the kid wanders away, and that's sort of uh, the Maggie Gyllenhaal character, Jean just snaps and the you know the police find the kid and the, the kid is you know scared and but okay but she is confronted with her sort of worst nightmare or sort of you know she says what she what she knew would eventually happen with by being in a relationship with a guy like this uh that the bottle would sort of uh uh be too too great a lure and she's asked him earlier never to drink in front of the kids so he's he's sort of broken that promise as well um 
So that's is that it? I thought as long as we're spoiling, let's spoil the end of their relationship sure. and get that out of the way, and then yeah. we can talk about you know the, a couple other things I want to touch on um, to do with her performance and his. But uh, but so they don't end up together. Is the surprising right. relationship spoiler right? I mean, this is the kind of movie where at the end he turns himself around and they somehow manage to make it work, or at the very least, there's a tentative scene where they're starting to possibly get together at the right. end. Actually, this is the kind of movie that you would think would end with a wistful maybe yeah. they'll make it kind of scene, but it absolutely doesn't. That really is for her the end point, and right. um, and she leaves him for good. He then goes into rehab, which thank God they don't show us. I was grateful that this movie didn't have a rehab segment where he made a rehab buddy and stuff oh my like God. that. Yeah, no, that we, we have a brief, the briefest glimpse of his rehab uh, time, but he just comes out clean and, and sort of unbelievably so. He seems to really turn around his life. We see him, uh, a sort of good good scene or two of him cleaning up his apartment and getting his act together. He looks, starts looking better. Um, but yeah, he, he cleans up and he goes back, you know, from Houston to Santa Fe to, to win win her back. And you're sort of assuming he'll he'll put on the bad Blake charm uh, and make it work. But she it, that that the losing of the son is was too much for her. She she rejects him again. And I thought that was a terrific, painful scene because she's not a bitch to him, right? No. I mean, she's genuinely pained and and, is, and essentially says, you know. I would give anything to be with you, but this is just too big an obstacle to get over. I can't trust yeah, you. Yeah, she says I, she says I love you, and and believably so. But she says I can't I can't do it. Which and, and you know you, she's a believably a mother in the movie as well as being a lover to Bad Blake, and you know clearly she puts her son's uh, interests ahead of her own um, in a, in a kind of sweet moment. There's, so just to finish spoiling their relationship, but we do at the very end of the movie we do they do see one another again, and uh, but as you say, Dana, they. Um, you know, she she is. Uh, they have a nice exchange, but she's wearing an engagement ring. She's met another man, and it is very clear that the, the their relationship is over. And and he kind of grants her a final interview, um, and it seems like they're going to be friends, and and that uh, they've clearly played a really major role in one another's lives. But they're not. There is no wistful hope that maybe these two will end up together. Yeah, it's like an Annie Hall ending. Actually, yeah. now that I think about it, it's like he sees her again and thinks about about how great it was. I think it's a really romantic ending. Yeah. I was going to ask you in terms of the journalism side sidebar of snarkiness that we've got going on. What's her press pass for at the end because she's upgraded in some way. Yeah, job. he says it. He, he like he says, "Ooh, impressive!" But you can't read. I what couldn't figure out what it was. I was thinking like maybe it was like a she was like a covering it for a wire. I, I don't know. <laughs> also, snarky journalism uh, take is like. I kind of think you can't do the interview at that point if you've had that relationship. A little bit with of a conflict of interest. Yeah, I think you're, you're going to have a big, disclosure. Full disclosure. <laughs> Three I've paragraphs. had sex with this man in many different places. <laughs> he lost my son in a mall. <laughs> yeah, so I, I, I don't know. But my know. journalistic integrity is not compromised. Yeah, that was, a, that was a little strange, although maybe it was a pretext just to have a cup of coffee together. But um, anyway, that, that moment, that ending moment, and that's the last scene in the movie, is, is poignant. And I, I, liked, I liked that the movie didn't um, contrive to have them get together or even suggest that it might happen. So let's um, let's move to talking about the music because I think this is a big part of why why I like this movie so much. Mm-hmm. And I'm wondering if if others will agree because I I saw it on my own. But I've had a few of the songs in this movie in my head for days now. Uh-huh. No, I I totally agreed. I was uh, I immediately when I when the movie ended, I like grabbed my laptop and to go see if iTunes had the uh, the soundtrack up already because I wanted to download one song in particular where the refrain is uh, some. Uh, it's funny how. Um, falling feels like flying at Which first. Which is a beautiful line, it's right? It's a beautiful line. The song's called line. Falling and Flying, and I looked for that on iTunes, too. Not up yet. <laughs> I'm sure come Friday it'll be available, and I and I'm r- really am, am looking forward to it. Where I shouldn't go Seeing who I shouldn't see Doing what I shouldn't do Being who I shouldn't be I never meant to hurt no one Thing is too much fun. This must be the price we pay. 
It all happens for a reason. Um, and you, you mentioned this earlier, but we should stress it. I, I, that Jeff Bridges is a musician, and that this has sort of been a sidelight for him. And I guess he he's released an album in you know in the past, and it you know yeah he's not like a Daniel Day Lewis I learned guitar for the role kind right. of guy here. He actually has been playing guitar for thirty years or so. Yeah, and you can you can tell like there's just an authenticity to the the, the movie um, lingers over his performances in a way that that's kind of great. It's not a long movie, but it makes time for a bunch of shows the the bowling alley show that we've mentioned, but also you know a show in a honky tonk bar, and later uh, a show a sort of a bigger concert. Uh, that he does at a slightly bigger venue, um, and we so we actually get to see him perform whole songs, and it's not like little snippets or some kind of you know there isn't some sort of maudlin medley of of you know him playing at a bunch of different venues. Uh, yeah, in other words, they're not just showing a scrap of the song to give you a sense of here's what this performance means for the narrative. There's a real right. appreciation for the song with which with both Bridges' delivery and and the movie's coverage of it. Right. We should all mention also mention that the songs most of them are by T Bone Burnett, or at least the music is. Right. I think that that um. Not Falling and Flying, but the redemptive song that he writes for Maggie Gyllenhaal that ends the movie. Right. Oh, it's called it's Crazy called Heart. It's called Crazy Heart, yeah. It's is, uh, is co-written by T-Burn Burnett and completely random sidebar, a guy named Ryan Bingham, which is the exact character name oh of my George Clooney. Same spelling in Up in the Air, which is a very probably unfortunate or maybe fortunate moment for Ryan Bingham, the musician. <laughs> but he's a young songwriter who collaborated on a couple of these songs. That's really funny. I didn't notice that. Um, one thing we haven't mentioned, or you, you sort of alluded to it, but I think it's an important part of the story of, you know, regarding his... Um, his art is. I think it, you know, he is this guy who enjoyed some level of celebrity on the country circuit and is now um, his best days are behind him. But it's interesting. He's still a good performer when he's at least not entirely drunk. But he does. He has reached his point where he doesn't feel like he has any new writing material, and that's the real sort of artistic turning point. Is he starts writing new songs again, and when he's playing the the songs at the beginning of the movie, he. Um, you know, he's sort of doing the kind of old hits for the people who've been following him for years and years, but he ha- he doesn't have any he doesn't have any new creative spark. Um, and so that that sort of movement towards getting to a point where he can write a new song, and ultimately he writes the song sort of about the movie you've just seen, about the relationship with with uh, the Maggie Gyllenhaal character. I, th- I thought that was kind of a nice uh, a nice arc for the for the sort of artistic part of the movie. All right, as long as we're talking about country music, let's stop here and take a break for our Audible recommendation of the week, which I'm really excited about. I did a little search on Audible for country music-related titles, and they have quite a few autobiographies of country musicians and biographies. But the one that we have to recommend here, because it's just too good, is The Entire New Testament, as read by Johnny Cash on Audible. Let's listen to a little clip of it here, because it sells itself. Now, the birth of Jesus Christ was as follows. After his mother Mary was betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, She was found with child of the Holy Spirit. Then Joseph, her husband, being a just man and not wanting to make her a public example, was minded to put her away secretly. But while he thought about these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take to you Mary, your wife, for that which is conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. And she will bring forth a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. So as listeners know, we have a deal with audible.com where if you sign up through our page, which is www.audiblepodcast.com slash spoiler, you get a free audiobook with your trial membership. And even if you decide not to keep the membership after the 14-day trial period, you get to keep your book. So go there, listen to Johnny Cash, and uh, give it a try. And you know, one way that the the movie, I guess one other aspect of the movie we haven't talked about, and, and this is related to the the songwriting idea. At some point in the, in the relatively recent past, um, it, it seems like Bad was Bad Blake was the mentor to a young kind of up and coming 
uh, country act um, named Tommy, I think Tommy Sweet, um, who's played by Colin Farrell and, and sort of is a slick uh, slick version, maybe sort of, uh, uh, you imagine this is what Bad might have been like when he was a younger guy, although you kind of get the sense that Bad was a better guy than, than Tommy Sweet is. Tommy's kind of, a, kind of a jerk. He's a little bit like unctuous. Um, and an Reviste a little bit, An right? Reviste, yeah, exactly. Um, but Bad and, and Tommy, uh, you know, Bad taught uh, Tommy everything he knows. Uh, but now Tommy is the big star, and at a certain point in the movie, Bad is really um, broke and, and out of uh, opportunities and playing bowling alleys, and his agent calls him and says, I got you a big break, I got you a big venue, but you got to open for Tommy. And it's this sort of classic mentor-apprentice thing where you know the mentor is now having to uh, you know ride the coattails of this uh, upstart that he, you know, who, who he taught, um, which also just a, a, a sort of interesting element of the of the movie and um, Colin Farrell not entirely convincing as a as a, a country uh, western singer, but uh, he's okay. Yeah, mentioning Colin Farrell is a good springboard to talk about Jeff Bridges' delicious multi-layered milfoy of a performance. Yes. It's just like got so many great things yeah, to talk about. Yeah, let's talk about. about that. I mean, Colin Farrell, as we were saying before, the the, the taping is so. If to the extent that Tommy Sweet is supposed to be sort of an inauthentic R beast, Colin Farrell's kind of perfect to play him. <laughs> I mean, I love Colin Farrell in the right role, but he's not the you know the rootsiest guy, no, right? No. And uh, and that comes across well in that character. But everybody else who's acting in this movie, even including Robert Duvall in a way, I feel like is 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 on a whole different level than Jeff Bridges, who's just right. so at the top of his game and I doing agree. something I wasn't quite sure he could do. I love him so much as a comic actor, and The Big Lebowski obviously is like his classic role. But I feel like he's he's taking some of that same power that he brought to to the funny role. And bringing it to a dramatic role, I agree. He he definitely showed me something in this in this movie, and I'm a huge Bridges fan. I've seen a ton of his work, um, and uh, there are moments of, of of humor in this in this movie. He's he can be a very funny and and as we've said, sort of wickedly charming guy. But there's also really deep pathos. I mean, he, he's so uh, self-destructive. Well, there's and... humor in the pathos is what's fantastic. <laughs> yeah, that's like, true. I want to just send this out to people who are saying, like, I am not going to see a redemptive other Walk the Line country music biopic. You right. know, not that Walk the Line is a bad movie, but, you know, that standard sort right. of weepy. And this is really not that. And I think a large part of that is because of the amount of wit that Jeff Bridges brings to everything. Yeah, yeah. Um, he his uh, he takes on a, a sort of amazing drawl. Um, I think you and I both had trouble making out some some of the lines that he says because he's because he's drunk and because he has uh, this this sort of southern uh, twang to his voice. Um, I just like couldn't understand him at some points, but it, it just sort of lent authenticity to the character. He also just he sort of takes on these great. Um, affectations that the movie um, handles very lightly in a uh, in a way that I appreciated. I think you and I both really loved it. You know, he uh, he drives this uh, like '78 suburban, I think, that's like on its last legs, and we see and he kind of looks like he lives out of it sometimes when he's on the road. Um, and we see lots of shots of him on the road in that car, and then getting out when he gets to his destination. And whenever he gets out of the car, he um, hitches up his pants and, bu- and and buttons his belt buckle. And, and like it just seems like you know he, to, to relieve his gut while he's driving, he takes his he uh, undoes his belt. And it's like it was just a great touch. You almost think that that was something that maybe um, Bridges himself it kind of came up with. It had to have been because the director, as you said, never points it out. There isn't sort of zoom into belt buckle and right. done. Yeah, right? exactly. There's it just was... the sense that he's this you know fat slobby guy who wants to undo his belt. And there's tons of little bits of character detail and business like that that are just so juicy. Yeah, um, and he's just you know he's just really uh, he's just really winning. You you want to you want to get to know uh, Bad Blake. Um, that, and unfortunately for Gyllenhaal, that sort of points up the, the, the insufficiencies of her performance. She's not bad at all. And all she no. really has to do is be kind of an acceptable love object, a, a believable love, jo- love object. It's not a terrible role even. No. But 
it's just a whole other ball game from what Jeff Bridges is up to. And I yeah. never was able to quite buy Maggie Gyllenhaal as country. You know, yeah, she's, she's just not very it's, it's, and it's not her fault. It's a casting thing. She's just not a country girl. Yeah. And I, the moment she tried to sort of sell herself as such, like the the hometown girl made good or something, it didn't really fly. Yeah, I agree with that. But you know, she uh, she's fine. Um, and in a way, it's like. This is such a movie about the the bad Blake character. Um, I mean, I guess it would it could have been stronger if we had a slightly more believably country uh, female lead. But really, um, you you go to this movie to see to see bad Blake, um, and you should, and and you should indeed. All right. Well, we've gone a little long in this one because we're we're such cheerleaders for yes. it. But I think we should do up our belts and <laughs> get out of our truck. <laughs> Fair enough. Thanks for joining me for this slate spoiler special. Uh, my pleasure, partner. For Slate.com, I'm Dana Stevens.